Tuesday, June 6th, was the 79th anniversary of D-Day. In 1944, American troops and their allies stormed the five beaches of Normandy, Omaha Beach being the most notable because of the intensity of the fighting there and the immense loss of life that occurred on that one day. Now, I'm sure that many of you recall seeing the movie Saving Private Ryan, where a small band of soldiers was ordered to rescue a young man whose mother had already been notified that three of her four sons had been killed in the war. So that she would not lose her fourth son, this band of troops went out searching for Private Ryan. My father-in-law, who was at Omaha Beach that day, and witnessed the fearsome fighting and the carnage that occurred there, told me that the opening scenes of that movie that they depicted were paled in comparison with what actually happened there on Omaha Beach. It was only toward the end of his life that he decided to even go and see the movie. Like so many of his generation, the greatest generation who served in World War II, he never spoke about the war. But for some reason, one day, he sat down with me and said, Bill, I want to tell you about Omaha Beach. Well, he told me of all the unspeakable sights and deafening sounds that he witnessed that day that could never be reenacted on the silver screen, and particularly the smells. He said, the smells of the cordite produced by bombs exploding all around and the unending bursts of machine gun fire. All of these images had been seared into his mind for years. It was only near the end of his life that this once brave soldier was able to talk about them. Well, the sacrifice that thousands of Americans and Brits and Canadians and all of our other allies made on those beaches that day were what we often refer to as the ultimate sacrifice. Sacrifices made to purchase the freedom of people from another land, people that these young soldiers didn't even know, but, they, but that they believed needed to be saved from an evil empire, the likes of which the world had never seen before and has not seen since. I think it's safe to say that there's no sensitive or feeling person in the entire world who cannot grasp the extraordinary significance of someone dying for another human being, dying for others, dying for one's country, dying so that others might live is a clear description of what these soldiers did then, and it's what they continue to do to this very day, wherever they're called upon to do so. I've been to several military memorials where carved into the granite and into the marble stone, you'll often read these words of Jesus from John's Gospel. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. To die for another human being is to make the ultimate sacrifice. Just think of that phrase, to die for. I have to wonder just who or what you or I would be willing to die for. 
In today's reading that you just heard from Romans chapter 5, which Paul was no doubt dictating to his secretary, as he did with most of his epistles, by the way, he makes this bold assertion in verse 6. Listen carefully. Christ died for the ungodly. And then, as we read on, it's as though he's thinking out loud. What did I just say? Died for the ungodly? Who would die for an ungodly person? Most people wouldn't even die for a righteous person. Well, maybe a person would conceivably dare to die for a righteous one, although I doubt it very much. You can almost hear him thinking out loud as he writes. The real question he's asking is this one. Who would die for what? What is there to die for? And who is there to die for? In order to understand these words of Paul, we have to put aside the idea of dying for one's friends, one's family, one's fellow countrymen, and even one's fellow soldiers. Paul does not say that Christ died for his friends. He says that Christ died for the ungodly. He says that Christ died for us while we were still his enemies, while we were still, or yet, sinners. Did you catch that little word? Still, yet. While we were still sinners, that is, while we were still actually sinning, he died for us. What that means is that we had not made any progress toward being sinless, without sin. What amazes me is that there are so many religions in the world today that are based on this idea that people can make progress and actually become sinless, without sin. Paul reminds us in his letter to the Ephesians that we are saved by grace, pure grace, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not of works, not of anything that we can do, lest we boast. Granted, Paul continues that sentence by saying that we are God's workmanship, created for good works, to do good works, that is, which God has prepared for us to walk in. You'll hear it in the post-communion prayer, which we say every Sunday. Now, having said that, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, we flunk that test every time because our good works can never and will never save us. There's nothing we can do, nothing we can do, nothing we can do that will ever save us. To be sure, we can make progress by modifying and changing some of our actions, behaviors, conduct, attitudes, and speech. We call that sanctification, which is the work of the Holy Spirit working in us to help us to make the necessary changes in our lives so that we can become the people that God not only created but intended for us to become, something that never happens this side of heaven. But the truth of the matter is this. We are still and always will be sinful human beings. There will never come a time in our lives when we can stop saying, 
Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. In fact, that prayer should be in our hearts and on our lips every single day. If Jesus were walking to, into these doors today and down this aisle at St. Philip's Church, right now, this very moment, we should all have the words of that prayer on our lips. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you remember that parable that Jesus told about some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, namely perfect, without sin, obeyed all the laws, and looked down on others. You know the story about the two men who went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Remember that tax collectors were despised on at least two accounts. Brian told us all about tax collectors last Sunday in his wonderful sermon. First, they were collaborators with the enemy, the Roman government. And secondly, they skimmed off a percentage of the tax revenues that they had collected from the people to line their own pockets and become filthy rich. So they were hated by the people. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus, listen to this, with himself. Prayed with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this despicable tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing a far way off, could not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I envision Jesus looking straight out at that self-righteous crowd that day of people who were listening to him saying, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Well, Jesus told a lot of stories like this. And it was stories like this, this kind of storytelling that got Jesus crucified. Absolutely no one likes to think about themselves as a sinner. Do any of you actually relish coming to church to hear about your sinfulness? Well, we talk about it every Sunday. In fact, whether it's morning prayer or Holy Communion, like this morning, we are going to say together a confession of our sins. Oh, we enjoy reading in the newspaper and People Magazine and the National Enquirer and gossip columns about other people's sins and their downfalls and their mistakes. We call that schadenfreude, taking pleasure in somebody else's misfortune or downfall. In other words, when they make the mistakes. But that's their problem, we say, not ours. We're not as bad as them. In many respects, we're all Pharisees to one degree or another. That's why we resist Paul's gospel, which emphatically declares that while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for us. We don't like that part about being ungodly, helpless, enemies, sinners. They're all there in Romans chapter 5. So what do we do? We substitute those words for another gospel. This gospel is with a small g. 
I call it the American Gospel. This one, God helps those who help themselves. Many polls have shown that vast numbers of Americans believe that that statement actually comes straight out of the Scriptures. What I can tell you with absolute certainty is that it does not come from God's Word. It's attributed to Benjamin Franklin. In fact, the Bible tells us the exact opposite of that statement. And here I'm going to paraphrase the Apostle Paul. When we could not help ourselves, we could not help ourselves, Christ died for us. You see, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we are now justified by his blood. Did you know that that word justified is the same word that Jesus used in the parable that I just told you, that I just read to you about the Pharisee and the tax collector? I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house, here's the word, justified, rather, rather than the other man, the Pharisee. That one word, justified, is absolutely essential to our understanding of the meaning and the content of the Christian gospel. In its simplest form, justify means to make something right, something that was wrong, to make it right. I like to use the word itself to define it. I'll make it easy for all of us. Justified, just as if I'd never done it. That's the meaning of justified. Just as if I'd never done it. What St. Paul means by justification is that God is actually making right what we have made wrong, or more specifically, what we have done wrong. And that is exactly what Christ was doing when he died on the cross, on our behalf, as a sacrifice for our sins. He was restoring our broken relationship with God, a relationship which had been broken and severed by our sin. In a previous parish that I served, the parents of a 20-something-year-old son who was living on the streets, flat broke, and had become addicted to crack cocaine, came to me one day to tell me about what their son was up to, what he was doing with his life. Having changed all the locks in their home one day while they were at work, their son broke into their house and stole a very valuable heirloom piece of jewelry from his mother's jewelry chest. And then he sold it for a mere fraction of its actual worth to do what? Buy drugs. Well, his parents were livid. They were seething with anger and anguishing over what their son had done. And in the span of just a few minutes in my office, they went from saying, I never want to see him again, to saying, how do you think we can help him? Similarly, God has both anger toward our sin and compassion and love for the sinner. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. 
God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ made the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be justified, just as if I'd never done it, made right and reconciled to God. Do you recall that question that I asked you at the beginning of the sermon? Who would die for an ungodly person? And who, pray tell, might that person be? Who's the most ungodly person you can think of right now? Well, if you need a few ideas, I won't name names. However, they could be a handful of rogue dictators or persons or groups whose ideologies and intentions are all about destroying us. Whomever they may be, can you imagine asking our American troops to give their lives up for them? Oh, that's utterly absurd. That's crazy to even consider, isn't it? And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. He died precisely for the kind of persons that would nail him to a cross. Persons who would even mock him while they were doing their dastardly work of driving those nails into his hands and into his feet. Yet while they were nailing him to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But the actual interpretation and translation of that passage says this, while they were nailing him to the cross, he kept on saying, Father, forgive, Father, forgive, Father, forgive. See, Christianity at its deepest level is not religious, not religious per se. I say that because the cross is far too offensive to be religious. In fact, how did Paul refer to the cross in 1 Corinthians? He called it a scandal. And if you were to look up the word religion in the dictionary, you find that its definition is about human beings and not about God. It talks about belief, about worship, about prayer, and about ritual. These are the things that we do in seeking after God. But the stories that we, th that we read throughout the pages of Scripture they're all stories about how God is seeking after us. In the beginning, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, God is the one who called out, Adam, where are you? Those are the very first words Adam heard after he had rebelled and plunged the entire creation into sin and death. The work of redemption that began following that first sin by Adam and Eve is God's and God's alone. God has done a work which is so comprehensive that it's able to rectify our greatest wrongs, we and the whole world and all that we have ever done. When we are indicted of our past, present, and yes, even our future sins and have to appear in God's courtroom, where God is the judge. We are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, which not only acquits us, but sets us free, sets us on the path to righteousness, that is, doing what is right in the sight of God.
out of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. That's why we do the good works that we do, out of gratitude and thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us. What this means is that our standing before God has completely changed. It's no longer that of being his enemies. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he now makes us his friends. What a friend we have in Jesus. Because of Christ's death, we are saved. It's all pure grace, a free gift from God for those of us who receive that free gift by faith. Free to us, but ever so costly to him. It cost him his very life. There's nothing in any of the world's religions that even remotely resemble this story. This story about the self-giving love of God. A God who would offer up his very own son to die for the ungodly and to purchase our redemption for us. Jesus made a far greater sacrifice than did any of those thousands of men who died on the beaches of Normandy 79 years ago. His, his sacrifice was the true, ultimate sacrifice that has ever, ever been made. So I want to ask you this question just one more time. Who is there to die for? Who is there to die for? Here's God's answer. We are. You are. And for that we say but one thing, thanks be to God. Amen.